Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, friends. Uh, it's so good to be with you. Um, before we get to our uh, sermon time for this morning, would you uh, join me for a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this chance to gather together. God, thank you for the gift of technology, um, which unites us and brings us together in the midst of these strange times. God, we thank you for your spirit um, that meets each of us where we are and somehow mysteriously and divinely unites us. Um, we ask that your spirit um, would lead us and guide us now as we open the scriptures and wrestle with them. And would your spirit lead us and guide us and shape us and form us into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, being a uh, young father, uh, Christmas time has caused me to reflect on the birth of my own son, uh, which was just over 10 months ago, which is just absolutely wild. Um, Pax's uh, arrival and birth uh, was a bit surprising and scary. Um, he came about three weeks early. And all of it happened late one Thursday evening. Um, we had had a pretty full, busy day, and we were settling down for the evening, uh, starting to make our way towards bed. And something happened, and it just became very, very apparent that um, we needed to get to the hospital as soon as we could. And so uh, I race uh, a little above the speed limit to Altman, um, as a young father would. And uh, we get there, and uh, shortly after we arrived there, it became pretty apparent that we needed to move towards uh, a somewhat like emergency sort of C-section. Now, thankfully, I was able to uh, be in the operating room. And I remember shortly after he was born, uh, they wrapped him up and they handed him to me. And I'm sitting there next to Allie, holding her hand and holding Pax in our other hand. And just being pretty starstruck at this moment and looking down and thinking, this is my baby. <laughs> and for the last 10 months now, uh, I've been kind of staring at him thinking that exact same thing. This is my baby. Over the course of those uh, first few days, I just kept thinking, like, he is so precious and perfect. And thankfully, this happened like pre-COVID because we were able to have some friends and family come and visit. And uh, most of them said the same sort of sentiment, like, he is precious and perfect. Now, shortly after uh, we got home, uh, one of my friends who's a pastor in town uh, came to visit. So we're sitting in our living room, and um, we tell him the story of how Pax was born, and then we ask him, hey, would you like to hold him? He said, absolutely. And so we hand him off to him, and he looks at him, and he says, well, just as I suspected. Allie and I looked at each other and we're like, yeah, we know. He's pretty precious and perfect, isn't he? He goes, no, that's not at all what I was thinking. He said, this one, this one right here, is going to be responsible for the falling and rising of many people in his life. Allie and I looked at each other and said, excuse me? Okay, maybe that last part didn't actually happen, but can you imagine? My goodness, like, that would be the worst thing to tell a newborn parent, Right? Like, at that point, all you want is for your child to stay in this place of preciousness and perfectness. You want to tell me that my child will be responsible for the rising of many? Sure, absolutely. I'm all for that. Like, I pray that my son will be responsible for the rising of many and will lead the world in change in really good and positive ways. But the falling? Like, 
that's to acknowledge that from the very beginning, my child is going to experience all sorts of conflict and confrontation, all sorts of disagreements, all sorts of discord, and maybe even be responsible for the falling of some. Rising, absolutely, I'm all for that. But the falling, yeah, not so much. <laughs> and yet, we recognize that this is exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, was told not too long after the birth of her baby boy. So in Luke chapter 1 and 2, we're told of all of these strange and divine interventions that, that weave all of these stories together that lead up to the birth of Jesus. And then we're told of the birth of Jesus. And about halfway through uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, we're told of some of the events that take place shortly after his birth. So in Luke chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 22, we're told, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here we have Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to complete what we might call like the, the purification and the presentation process. Now, you might have noticed that in just these few short verses, this phrase, the law of Moses or the law of the Lord, is repeated multiple times, which means that this purification and presentation process is in accordance with the law of the Lord. Now, this reference to the law of the Lord comes from uh, Leviticus chapter 12 specifically. Now, I'm going to assume that most of us don't have Leviticus chapter 12 memorized. So, um, for those of us that don't, uh, Leviticus chapter 12 deals with um, this purification and presentation process of both mother and child. And the first half of the chapter deals with um, the details of how long a mother, after giving birth, is to remain ceremonially unclean. Now, I recognize, like, those are strange words for us with 21st century ears and eyes, but it, I don't think it would have been quite as strange uh, to them in their day. And after then giving the details of how long a mom is to remain ceremonially unclean, we get into the, the purification and presentation process of it. So in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6, we're told, When the days of her purification are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf, then she shall be clean from her flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. So this is the, the purification presentation process. So they are to bring a, a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon and offer this up to God. So this deals with the purification of the mom, but this also deals with the presentation of the child. And in some ways, this is uh, what we're getting at when we do child dedications, right? We acknowledge that this child is a gift from God and we offer this child back up to God. Now, uh, our child dedications are a little more um, simple and don't involve the, the shedding of blood, um, but the, the idea is still uh, similar here, right? We, we receive this gift and offer this gift back. But Leviticus chapter 12 doesn't end here. There's one more verse in it, and it states, If she cannot afford a sheep... She shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement on her behalf, and she shall be clean. Now pay close attention to the opening words of that final verse. If she cannot 
afford. Now, this comes from the law of the Lord. This comes from the Torah. This comes from like the foundational documents of the people of God. And we acknowledge that baked into the law are these clauses or these addendums for people who cannot afford. Meaning that baked into the system, baked into the law, baked into the fabric, the foundation of the people of God are these clauses, these addendums that um, prevent any sort of exclusion based on one's socioeconomic status. Now we jump back to Luke chapter 2 and we notice a very subtle yet important detail. And we're told uh, that the parents of Jesus presented a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tells us something very particular about uh, Mary and Joseph and thus Jesus's place within society. It tells us that they were broke. (laughs) It tells us that they were numbered among the poor, that they found themselves in poverty that as they come to do this purification presentation process, that they have to abide by the clause, the addendum that is made for those who cannot afford. Now, that's a subtle, but it's a really important detail. And we'll come, back. we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, Luke continues on and he tells us of a man by the name of Simeon. Now, Simeon is some sort of like religious leader. And Simeon works in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Simeon has had this promise from God that Simeon will not die before he sees, the, or sees with his own eyes the Messiah of God, the one that the people of God have been hoping for and longing for and waiting for for generations. And then Luke tells us that guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, Now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. So imagine the, the scene here. Uh, Simeon, this religious leader, has just received the boy Jesus and is holding him and is looking at him and cries out to God, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. Which means, like, as Simeon is looking at Jesus, that this baby Jesus is the embodiment of the salvation of God. Which tells us that this boy Jesus is going to be the great liberator, the great healer, the great savior of the people of God that they have been longing for for so long. This boy Jesus is going to be the embodiment of the liberation, the healing, the saving that they have been hoping for and longing for and crying out to God for, for generation upon generation. And can you imagine Mary, his mother's elation at this point? Like, this is like exponentially above people telling you that your baby is precious and perfect, right? This is the salvation of God. This is the embodiment of God's liberation and healing and saving. And oh, if Simeon had only stopped there. (laughs) Because Luke continues on and we're told, Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, uh, if you ever encounter a new mother, please do not say these words, because just like that, there goes the elation of Mary, right? (laughs) Again, the rising, absolutely. What parent doesn't want to be told that their child will be responsible for the rising of many? We all want our children to be responsible for the elevating, the benefiting of other people. But the falling... 
Again, we don't want to know from the very beginning, or we don't want to acknowledge from the very beginning that our child is going to enter into conflict and confrontation, disagreements and discord. We don't want to think about our child engaged in all of those things. So what gives? (laughs) Well, remember, just before this, Simeon has told us that his eyes have seen the salvation of God. That Jesus is the salvation of God. That Jesus is the embodiment of God's liberation and healing and saving. Now recognize that for there to be something like liberation and healing and saving, this must mean that there are people who are being oppressed or harmed. And for there to be people who are oppressed and harmed, this means that there must be people doing the oppressing and harming. Now, for God to come and bring about liberation and healing and saving, this means that God in Christ takes on flesh and aligns God's self among those who are on the underside of society, those who are experiencing oppression and being harmed. And this is where the rising comes into place because God has uh, aligned God's self with those who are experiencing oppression and harming in order to elevate and benefit their place in society. But this is also where the falling comes into place because, well, we don't have to look too far in our own world to recognize that not everyone is down with liberation and healing and saving of those who are oppressed and harmed. Now, we come back to those, uh, that subtle little detail about the the turtle doves and the pigeons. And we recognize... um, that when God takes on flesh, when God enters into the story of humanity, that God doesn't do so in the home of like a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates, <laughs> nor do, does God do it in the home of those who are firmly rooted in the middle class. But when God takes on flesh and enters into the story of humankind, God does so among those who probably find themselves in government housing, receiving government assistance. Meaning like when God takes on flesh, when God enters into the story of humankind, God does so among those who are longing and crying out for liberation and healing and saving. Now it seems that from the very beginning of the story, Luke is wanting us to recognize where the rest of the story is headed. And that seems to be this idea that the way of Jesus is not the way of neutrality. That when God takes on flesh, when God enters into the story of humanity, God does so in a particular place in society to benefit a particular people within society. Now, this inevitably comes with the rising of that group of people. It comes with the, the, but it also comes with the falling of others, which certainly is not the way of neutrality. Now, again, when we talk about rising, we're talking about the elevating or the benefiting of a group of people. When we talk about the falling, we're talking about the exposing and the overturning of a group of people. Now, I don't think there's any place where we see this more evident uh, than in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. So we know Matthew's Beatitudes, right? These are the warm, fuzzy ones. These are the ones that we want to talk about, right? These are the blessed are, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the, the meek, the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. And it goes on and on and on. And it ends with these blessings and we feel warm and fuzzy and everybody's invited to the party, right? Luke's Beatitudes are a little different. He begins with these blessings that we're familiar with. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate you, defame you, and exclude you. But following these blessings come what we call the woes. (laughs) 
Woe to you who are rich, and woe to you who are full now, and woe to you who are laughing now, and woe to you when all speak well of you. (laughs) See, when Jesus comes and talks about the arrival of the kingdom of God, he talks about it in a way that it's, 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 it's causing the rising of some. The blessed are, but it also comes with the falling of others, the woes to those who refuse to align themselves with the way of Jesus. When God takes on flesh, when God enters among us, which is the story of Christmas, God does so among those who find themselves on the underside in order to become their salvation, to liberate them, to heal them, to save them, to, ri- to, to be the one causing their rising in society. But this uh, inevitably means that it leads to the exposing and overturning of those who cause those on the underside to be on the underside. The exposing and overturning of those who are the oppressor and those causing harming, which inevitably leads to their falling. The way of Jesus is not the way of neutrality. And friends, this is the story, this is the way that we have been invited into. Now, uh, I recognize that it's Christmas time, uh, which means that there may be a question that has been bubbling up around your household, and that is the question of the gifts of Christmas, right? But I wonder if in light of the story and in light of Simeon's insights on the the baby boy Jesus, if maybe a better question would be about the work of Christmas. Um, There was a a monumental and influential uh, theologian and civil rights leader in the 21st century, or in the 20th century, by the name of Howard Thurman, And he penned a poem uh, titled, The Work of Christmas. And in it, he writes, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. Um, It seems as though Thurman here is suggesting that when all of the the celebration is over, when all of the fanfare surrounding this event is done, then we begin to actually engage of the work of the celebration that we've been celebrating. (laughs) And for Thurman, it's to find the lost, heal the broken, feed the hungry, release the prisoner, rebuild the nation, bring peace among the people, and make music in the heart. This is the work of Christmas, or we might just simply say that this is the way of Jesus, is it not? And what we see with the way of Jesus is it's not a way of neutrality, but it is unapologetically for those who find themselves on the underside of society. Those who are experiencing oppression and harming at the, uh, from the hands of others. Now, you may be thinking, we're like two days removed from Christmas, right? Like, the celebration, the fanfare isn't quite over yet. Why are we already talking about um, the work of Christmas? Well, the reason why um, we jump right into the work of Christmas is because there's a number that's been stuck in my head for the last few weeks that I haven't been able to shake. And that number is 56.9%. If you're not uh, aware, uh, there was an article that was released a few weeks ago um, that uh, cited um, uh, research that was done in the city of Canton and deemed this number, 56.9%, 
to be the child poverty rate in our city. Now this number of 56.9% is rated second highest in our nation um, uh, for cities of 60,000 or more. Now think about all of the major cities, 60,000 or more, we have the second highest poverty, uh, second highest child poverty rate among all of them. And friends, I don't know how we don't read the story of Christmas as something more than just an event that took place 2,000 years ago with a baby being born in poverty. See, I think the story of Christmas is, calls us and reminds us that God is entering into our story and entering into our world and is taking on flesh in the lives of the 56.9% of children in our city this very moment. And I, I don't think that Christmas Celebrating the arrival of Jesus, I don't think that celebrating the, the arrival of Jesus has to be limited to December 25th because we recognize that Jesus has arrived among us in the 56.9% of children in our city this very moment. And I don't know how the story of Jesus entering in to a poor family in poverty doesn't provoke us as the body of Christ to make sure that that number is ever that high again. Friends, the story of Christmas is the story of God taking on flesh and choosing not the way of neutrality, but choosing to align, to become, to incarnate among those who find themselves on the underside of society. Those who are crying out for liberation, those who are crying out for healing and saving. And the invitation of Christmas is for all of us to join in on this way, to follow the Spirit of God wherever the Spirit is bringing about liberation and healing and saving. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is the work of Christmas. And we do so recognizing that Christ will meet us there when we join him. Let's pray. Loving God, we are profoundly grateful for Christmas. God, for the event that took place some 2,000 years ago, when you took on flesh and dwelt among us. God, we give you thanks for the, the particular, uh, peculiar details of that. Um, that you entered into a family, um, not in the top 1%, but that you entered into the family that finds themselves crying out for liberation and healing and saving. And God, we are grateful that you are the salvation of those crying out. And God, we're grateful that you invite us into that work of liberation and healing and saving. And so God, I pray that your spirit would stir us, would provoke us towards following your spirit wherever your spirit is at work bringing about liberation and healing and saving. And God, could we join in on the work that you were doing to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.